And I think that that's something that we're really seeing a lot in Gen Z's across the board, creator economy and other kind of just gig economy and the rise there, where most people are operating as freelancers with multiple gigs and really supplementing their income should things change, should there be additional instability after, you know, Gen Z's live through a pandemic and they've already lived through a recession as a child and now they're about to go into another one. It really has created a generation that is pretty risk adverse and does things in a way to make sure that they can de-risk their own ability to get jobs and get work. Welcome to the Social Complex Podcast, where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. The creator economy is a new one and an interesting one to say the least with so many of these content creators popping up in all facets of life, what is it that makes one stand out? What's the difference between an influencer and a content creator? And how can these content creators help unlock potential for brands to scale content in a quality way and at speed? Today, we are talking with Madison Long, Madison is joining us from Clutch, where she drives the company's vision of building a world where authentic, engaging work supports a more sustainable, equitable lifestyle. Her passion for entrepreneurship and helping the next generation thrive began in childhood, including spending her high school summers creating a math mania programmatic instruction class for middle school students in need and working with youth advocacy programs in college. Prior to Clutch, Madison was a program development and analytics lead at Lean In, where she led multiple initiatives, including the foundation's 2020 Women in the Workplace report, along with their first project focused on empowering youth girls. Madison's overall goal is to create opportunities for the next generation to thrive in life and work. In today's conversation, we cover the gamut when it comes to content creation, including everything from the business side of becoming a content creator, how organizations are scaling their content creation efforts, and also some of the safety concerns around programs, platforms, and the next generation of content creators, including the kids. We talk a little bit about what is out there with regulations, kids communicating online, and how we can keep their safety front and center. We get into a lot of different areas and categories that are fascinating to me, and I hope they are fascinating to you as well. Let's get into it. What drew you to be an entrepreneur? What was that like inkling that you had coming from Indianapolis? So both my parents are very entrepreneurial. My mom never did her own entrepreneurship journey as a full-time career. Um, She's a pharmacist and and really rode the corporate ladder. But also part of that was in large part being a first-generation college grad in her family who needed to make sure that there was the stability. And obviously entrepreneurship has a lot of risk inherently, but she always encouraged me and my two sisters to take those risks, to be able to be set up, to be able to take more heavy swings um, that she wasn't able to do. And then my dad is an entrepreneur and around, I think when he was around 40 years old, ended up starting his own entrepreneurial journey uh, in the home care, healthcare space. And so it has been something like magnificent just to be able to observe as his child, his kind of journey and how he assesses risk and working with business partners and working on different kind of solutions or 
working in different kind of industries till he really found what fit and what he could really bring a unique differentiator to and help build revenue and build employee bases and, and make a really big impact. And so as I was growing up, I always knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but really intentional about empowering the next generation and working with youth. And so I would always volunteer my time working with youth, spend my summers in high school teaching like math mania courses to middle schoolers who are falling behind. And in college, my honors program was focused on youth advocacy. And so it was a really natural transition to then when I was working full-time and we initially came up with the idea for Clutch for it to be focused on empowering the next generation and creating more opportunities for young folks to thrive. So let's talk about that gap in the market when you started Clutch. What were you seeing and what was the fill that you saw as far as the opportunity that that Clutch could really come to the market? Totally. So in V1, version one, we were super, super focused on uh, college-age students. And that was our initial kind of beachhead just to approach the market because we knew that was our core demographic audience. And the reason why was because a lot of college students had just started coming back to campus from COVID, were struggling to be able to figure out how to make ends meet and find work that they could do safely in the comfort of their home or dorm, but still make some real money and doing stuff that they find joy in. And during COVID and during the lockdowns, we saw a huge rise in the way that people are able to make money through social media. But there was a gap even in social media uh, monetization when it comes to being an influencer with a million followers and being someone who sometimes here and there gets a free product. There's a huge gap for the people that can have an ongoing presence, make regular produced content, almost like a part-time job, and be able to do that for one or multiple brands. And so that's where we saw Clutch really being able to come in and fill that gap. And so our creators are working with a brand for six to 12 months, making ongoing content that the brand owns. It's not about their followers as an influencer. It's about making really wonderful, engaging, authentic content that can resonate with that brand's audience and getting paid on a weekly basis. A lot of times creators are getting paid on net 90 schedules or even longer sometimes and having to track down their invoices and money. We did not want that to be an issue for our creators. And so we pay them weekly they don't have to worry about negotiating their rates. They get to set their own rates and they get paid what they deserve. And so that's been something that has been fundamental to us trying to structure Clutch to serve their needs. So for people who don't know about Clutch, what is Clutch and how can creators <laughs> you know, check it out and, and what's the benefit to them? You've alluded to some of them, but I'd love to hear sure. the pitch as far as yes. what Clutch does. Yes. So the one-liner is that Clutch unites marketing visionaries to expert niche creators who understand how to drive engagement across diverse audiences. And what that really looks like is a marketing agency or a marketing director at a company is looking to augment their already existing social media uh, strategy with additional content creation so that videos aren't getting produced once a month on their page, it's now able to have videos being produced on a daily basis or multiple times a week at a minimum. That's fundamental to any sort of social media strategy nowadays, regardless of the platform that you exist on. Video is prioritized. Video beats the algorithm 10 times out of 10. And so with what the benefit is for these businesses is really focused on being able to augment this in a, a 
very fast, expedited, and also accessible way while being able to find the perfect creator who meets those needs. On the creator side, What's great about working with Clutch is, again, you don't need to be an influencer to be very successful on Clutch. You can have two, 3,000 followers, but have a really specific niche. For example, we were looking for a creator who had a deep interest in puzzles and crosswords. We found someone who was making content, dedicating their page to talking about crosswords, Wordle, all those type of things. And we had a client who was releasing a new app onto the app store called Puzzle Palace. And they wanted to have a creator who could talk about the different app features and and have it in a very excited but informative manner. And we were able to pair them up in under a week. And so as a creator, it's again, you can come in from wherever you exist from a, let's say, metrics perspective, but if you have a really strong point of view, have a really good voice when it comes to the audience that you attract and resonate with, we are likely to be able to find you someone that you are going to be able to collab with in a meaningful way. All the other kind of features I was mentioning, like getting paid weekly, not having to negotiate your rates, those type of things are just ways that we can take the friction out of you having a successful collab, but genuinely want to make sure that you're focusing on having a great experience. That is like the epitome of what I find so fascinating about social media is the fact that you do have all these niches. You do have all these Mm -hmm. little nooks and crannies of interest that, especially as, as a, you know, brand ambassador or, you know, more on the, the business brand manager side, you have so much untapped potential with these smaller creators that are more niche. What has been Mm -hmm. some of the, you know, I, I would say if you have a story or something that has resonated with you, as far as how just how powerful these more micro creators are or can be for brands? Yes, I love that question. Um, I actually have a statistic. Um, I love a statistic. Let me, I know, right? Let me pull it up really quick. Niche creators or those micro influencers or those really small audiences convert customers three times more than large influencers. And so it is proof. The proof is already there. That's not our data. That is general data from actual performance metrics across platforms. That's really been studied and digged into. And so it is actually going to affect the bottom line by working with folks who are more affordable. It sounds crazy, but yes, spending a million dollars on an influencer campaign, eh, you could probably spend a quarter million and have an even more successful campaign working with spreading those dollars across dozens of micro influencers. And so a lot of large brands are realizing this and trying to do this more, but a lot of large brands don't have the ability to source them and have a recruiter, right? It takes long enough to work with one influencer. Working with a ton of micro influencers is a lot to manage. And so with Clutch, we make that really easy. Now we're not a UGC platform that's just send 100 people product and they'll make a post about it next week, which is super valuable as well. And a lot of big brands also are recognizing that there's an opportunity there. But if you're looking to work with four or five, maybe 10 creators over the course of some months and really have consistent content being made, that's where we come in. So let's talk about that a little bit because resourcing seems to always be a question, a little bit of chicken or egg. Are you going to go out and 
you know, spend a million dollars on five influencers that are larger that based on the data isn't really going to have that same conversion rate? Or are you going to work with 50 micro influencers? But then, like you said, the capacity issue of working with that many influencers, what are some of the structures that you've seen brands have, like headcount wise, talent wise, that has made it much more attainable to scale that type of human capital marketing? Yeah. No, absolutely. That's a great question. I think that the biggest solution to meet that need is working with marketplace platforms and not just clutch. There's a ton of great ones for UGC, for micro influencers. If you're, you're looking for something in a smaller capacity to the traditional influencer model. And of course, clutch, obviously great, you know, but I, but I think that that's where these platforms really do supplement that because I just don't think it's reasonable for a massive company to add a hundred new 1099 contractors to their payroll through processing, through accounts payable, running invoices, et cetera. Um, all independently. However, that's still what a lot of these folks are doing um, or are working with agencies to do, which can be very inefficient for even a marketing agency leader. Now, a marketing agency leader has to manage 150 other freelancers until they're ready for a client who needs a specific need. And so we actually at Clutch don't just serve the businesses. We also serve agencies to help meet their client demand because we know that it's increasing on kind of all fronts for marketing experts. And so we want to be able to uh, be that solution who can allow them to further monetize their own goals. So we also, before we hit record, we're talking a little bit about the industry and the state of content creators, because similarly, you know, with, with content creation and with all of these different roles as they're continuing to, to change and what the social media manager was doing five years ago is drastically different than what's on their plate now, including some of this management of content creation and really figuring out that key to unlocking more frequency, better quality, better resonating content, which content creators are a fabulous, you know, way to do so. But I'm curious to hear your take on the state of that industry, especially taking a look at all of the tech layoffs that we've had recently and just the adjustment with inflation in the market. These are 1099 contract roles that do have, you know, much, you were saying risk a lot earlier when it came to entrepreneurship and there is an inherent risk in it. What are your thoughts on the state of the content creator industry and, and market for these people who are entering it or have been in it for a while? Absolutely. Um, it There is a risk. I think that's a very great way to define it. I think that these creators understand to actually have a career as a full-time content creator. They have to actually de-risk their own portfolio, let's say. And so social media managers at a corporation might be doing a lot of freelance work as content creators for maybe their local pizzeria or their local gym who, who need some additional social media support to help de-risk their dependence on just their one employer. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that that's something that we're really seeing a lot in Gen Zs across the board, creator economy and other kind of just gig economy and the rise there, where most people are operating as freelancers with multiple gigs and really supplementing their income should things change, should there be additional instability after, you know, Gen Zs live through a pandemic and they've already lived through a recession as a child and now they're about to go into another one. It really has created a generation that is pretty risk adverse and does things in a way to make sure that they can de-risk their own ability to get jobs and get work. Now, I at the beginning, you had mentioned kind of social media managers five years ago. I think that it is wild to think about the fact that there could be one person running social media for a company, even just a medium-sized company, right? Nowadays, it truly is a full-time job to run a really efficient LinkedIn it's a full-time job. You are making now copy. You're, you might be running the LinkedIn for the C-suite of the company, as well as the actual corporate accounts, as well as engaging with folks and running events on LinkedIn and LinkedIn Lives and blog posts. Like it, Each individual platform is now so intensive that it is beyond just one type of job. People need social media teams. Most companies cannot afford social media teams, and that's why it's essential to have ways to augment the content that's going to be created. A lot of folks are worried about how AI is going to change the creator economy landscape. Yeah, AI is going to be able to make it more efficient to make those blog posts and have maybe some copy generated in a meaningful way. AI can also take really long videos and shorten them down and try to get them ready to be shared on places like TikTok and Instagram. But at the end of the day, AI still needs to have a voice and that voice needs to be aligned with your brand. And there are need to be people even managing that entire process. And so as creators continue to kind of de-risk their own position in the market, it's going to be important that creators understand how to leverage AI to do their job more efficiently and how to really still make sure that they're having a unique voice and building an authentic relationship with their audience because audiences can peep when things seem a little weird or a little off and it might be impacted by AI or too wordy or whatever it might be. And so it's going to still be important to have some deep human interactions to be able to continue growing in this space and making sure that brands are staying true to connecting with their audiences. But I I, I do have quite a few kind of predictions in all those different realms of how things will go, but the creator economy is here to stay. And it's going to be something that is going to be lucrative for folks. They're just going to have to remain competitive. I love that you brought up AI because I think that that is something that remaining competitive, it it reminds me a lot of when the internet was really first emerging and you had some people that really embraced it. And then some people that were like, this is my job. (laughs) That is all this manual entry that I'm doing now this computer is going to be able to do it in two seconds. Like uh, my job is screwed. There's this uh, funny clip that I saw and it was of all of these creatives that were huddled around a computer watching the new Photoshop AI where it can tell you to, you know, select this little area and it change Um, it to, to like remove all the stuff in the background or things that, you know, historically creatives have designers have done for a long time and now they're looking yeah. at this AI doing it in two seconds and everyone looks a little bit stressed because they're saying, well, shit, that's my job right there. That's my job. Yeah. And that is so scary, especially yes. like you said, for 
individuals who have gone through so much instability and I think collectively as a world unit, having a pandemic, nothing rocks us all together a little bit more than our entire livelihoods being shut down and changed, you know, for, for longer than two weeks. So I think that there's something really powerful in what you said about remaining competitive and seeing the technology and, and embracing it rather than letting it run you and, you know, scare you off from, from this career path. Yeah. I think that in the same way we might laugh or smirk at someone who was scared of Excel back in 99. Right. Um, and would say, oh, well, why would they think that way? That's how people are going to look at us in 20 years. And so the folks that are embracing technology, being curious, understanding how to use it ethically, um, understanding how to use it to help advance their career, their businesses, their brands, are going to be the most successful. I, I, I think that as much as your inclination when it comes to kind of the fight or flight is to flight when it comes to kind of new technology. It's really something you need to buckle down and understand how to engage in a fight and really be present for and to come out on top. I think that it is going to change the amount of jobs that there are for kind of how you would break down maybe digital marketing jobs, graphic designer here, Photoshop here, photographer here. Those things are going to change but they're not going to be obsolete. So how can you use the, no one can take away from you the the talent you have, the experience, the expertise you have. How can you make sure that that's being communicated and the value that you provide as an individual is really, really strong to still remain very competitive and be able to do your job easier. Maybe as a graphic designer, you know, you used to be able to work with six clients a month and now you can work with 18 because of being able to use AI. And maybe your prices can't be as high because now there's way more graphic designers because of AI, but that's where you will just have to continue to adjust. And that's exactly what happened with the internet. Um, and how jobs kind of evolved. What are some of the emerging technologies or changes, whether it is through AI or just um, in general access to certain technology, even having editing devices on your mobile device, but what are some of those emerging technologies that have really transformed the content creator experience and that you think are going to be the most impactful in these next like one to two years? Honestly, it might sound a little basic to say, but I'm going to say the iPhone. The iPhone has been one of the biggest drivers of the creator economy and I think will continue to be. And the reason for that is because of the accessibility of it. People adapt to technology at their own pace, but Within kind of the culture of, and not just iPhone, but really mobile phones, people adapt when they feel left out much faster. And on things like an iPhone where there are all those new features, oh, you can edit this here, or even how Instagram changed the way people thought about photo editing, right? No one was able to like just edit a photo prior to that in a very accessible way. But as as 
the new features of the iPhone come out, maybe those goggles even where there's like augmented reality or those type of things become more commonplace. I think that's where we'll see the biggest shift and the biggest adaption. I don't think that's a basic answer at all. I think that that's a hidden gem right there with the iPhone. Yeah, it's it's so powerful. It's so powerful. Like you think of an iPhone and then you see like a three-year-old making a TikTok. Like that's technology that in that in that TikTok might blow up. And now that kid is like on a movie you see on Hulu like that happens. Right. That's a creator who had access to making a creation through maybe an app, maybe natively on the iPhone, just on the video thing. Someone posted it. It built traction. And now you have a a deal with a talent agency. That's crazy. That's just, that wouldn't be possible without literally the actual physical device. And that's where I think it will really guide. I'm sure Apple will have a lot of AI coming into their products in the future. Let's talk about that. You mentioned kids, because I think that that's something that is really interesting is that kids do learn and pick up so much quicker because they are the ones that are using it from a very young age, playing around, tinkering around, not really having an objective other than just exploration. What have you, have you noticed anything, especially with Gen Z or younger generations, as far as, you know, someone who just picked up something as a child or, you know, learned how to do something at such a young age that now they're, you know, turning that into a career path? Yes. I think that, um, the, There's definitely data to support that, right? Gen Zs grew up with very accessible mobile technology, whereas millennials evolved with it. And I'm a millennial. And like, I remember us getting our first computer in the home. Like, I remember my parents having really blocky cell phones. And that really (laughs) is now completely different. Whereas even my little sister, who's a Gen Z, first phone was an iPhone. And that was at seven years old for her because my parents wanted to be able to track when she got on and off the bus and they wanted to be able to make sure they had, you know, those type of things. And it was like, well, why not just give her the iPhone so we can have all the features to be able to get in contact with our child, which I'm like, what? That's crazy. An iPhone for a seven-year-old? But it obviously um, has different safety features, right? That parents really love. And that's something that for a millennial seems really crazy because we saw very little. And then we saw the entire evolution. And so with Gen Z's and Gen Alpha and and the kids currently, you know, under 18, I think that it is hard to separate a career from what you perceive a career to be online, because so many people have made it accessible to understand their career. Doctors are on TikTok lawyers are on, you know, Instagram talking about the career. Teachers are showing their classroom. Every profession now, you can watch a YouTube video on. You can you can take an online course for. You could learn another language on this amazing iPhone, right? And and so as I think there's a lot of stigma of, oh, Gen Zs just want to be famous. They just want to be content creators. They don't want to have a real job. They just want to make YouTube videos all day. I think there's more nuance to that. And I think that does infantilize them a little bit because it's more so they've always had at the in their fingertips the ability to have some insight into how people are living the lives they want to live, into the people that they look up to, how they got there, what they did, their own narratives from the voice of that person. 
that was not a thing until recently to be able to hear from your favorite person or the person you admire the most and hear directly from them how they feel. And so now that that is, I think people are looking at a career more holistically and recognizing that sharing your life online or being a creator is simply a part of also being a computer scientist, being a dentist, being a PhD candidate. They're not mutually exclusive. And so I will be curious to see the ways that that evolves over time. But I think that's honestly how they grew up. And so it's it's one in the same where maybe millennials, Gen Z, Gen X, boomers, et cetera, think of it like kids are always on their phone now. Like, mm-hmm. why can't anyone just do their job? It's like, no, they're at their job recording themselves to make content to help people break into tech. Like that is really interesting in my opinion and should be encouraged. Yeah. It's like, it's a new form of storytelling and expanding yes. your ability to, instead of being around, you know, one table, you have an entire virtual table of people that are curious about what it is. Do you think that there's any risk with the glamorization of certain roles or certain hobbies, certain niches that might you know, not negatively influence, but influence without really a full spectrum or a full picture because social media does tend to have rose-colored glasses? Or do you think that there's a nice balance because it is essentially an open marketplace for people to share both sides of the coin? So I think, ironically, this is a generational divide. I think that when millennials started getting introduced to social media, it all was about the rose colored glasses because this is an escape. Okay. I have my real life. Everyone knows that's whatever. I'm going to have the most beautiful things online and make sure that those things are shared. Uh, Ironically, Gen Z's were like, okay, well, we need more authenticity. I'm going to get online before I even brush my teeth and go on Instagram looking crazy. And you're going to watch me get ready. And I'm going to have zits everywhere and that's fine because this is my real life. And obviously there's still a lot of curation that happens even in those authentic moments. Mm -hmm. But I will say there is a lot of correction that I think the younger generation is trying to do in sharing their bad days, showing when things are hard, talking about things that they feel um, upset about in real time. However, yes, 100%, it is overselling how to get rich quickly. It's it's leaving a lot of opportunity for scammers who are like, oh, just do these different things and pay me 50 bucks and, mm-hmm. and you can have this easy life as well. It's putting people in harm's way. Oh, maybe I'll start a prank YouTube channel and now you're doing things that are putting yourself in danger as a child and you should not be doing that or a young adult even. And you shouldn't be doing that, but you're trying to just go viral for the sake of going viral. I think those things can be very... Um, dangerous. And I do think that it does require um, real responsibility of the adults in these young people's lives to help monitor. But I also know that kids are always going to find a way to be rebellious. Mm -hmm. And so it is something that, you like, even if, you know, all the schools and all the parents get together and say, okay, no more TikTok, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. TikTok ban is all about young people's safety, et cetera they're going to pivot to the next social media platform. Mm-hmm. I mean, they ban most social media on school Wi-Fi, right? Yeah. Except for LinkedIn. And they help the kids set up their own LinkedIn profiles and things of that nature. 
I, and this is an anecdote, this doesn't mean it's happening everywhere, but I know for a fact at, um, in elementary school, there were a ton of kids finding other kids that go to their elementary school and then messaging them on LinkedIn throughout the day. Okay, fine, right? They have their elementary school in their bio. Grown men were also finding these elementary school kids based mm. on the description in their LinkedIn and messaging these kids as well throughout the day. So it's like, you can only be like, do you get know what I mean? Like there's yeah. always going to be a loophole. There's always going to be danger associated um, with being online, mm -hmm. truly. And I don't think that's going away. So it really requires community education monitoring to be able to make it as safe as possible. Um but I don't think it's inherently bad and I don't think it's inher inherently good. Like, yeah. and, and especially things like TikTok. I don't think banning TikTok's going to rid from kids being online too much. It's just not going to happen. You know, that's a really, I think that there's a story there as far as there's always the new thing and there's always the, the bad people out in the world and teaching yeah. kids about their, using their voice to, you know, know what is right, what is wrong and, and trusting their instinct and having that open line of communication with the adults that they trust in their lives. That doesn't change if it is online or if it's right. you know, the person that's down the street that is becoming buddy, buddy with you. Right. And there's, there's creeps everywhere, which I think is yeah. the, the main, the main takeaway. But when it comes to social with TikTok, especially, I feel like a lot of the feedback and the, the fear around TikTok is a lot more on its addictiveness with kids mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. the, how kids and adults alike are falling into this just like mindless scroll and scroll and scroll. And so that to me, aside, and I think there is a, a parameter where it is your visibility into grown adults that are have nefarious intentions. But I right. also, I think that like addiction model too is something that mm -hmm. a lot of people flag when it comes to TikTok. Yes. A, a, the addiction as well as any sort of data privacy. I know that that's a huge one um, as well. I'll speak on the addiction thing. Um, I agree. It is addicting to get those kind of quick, high... Um, dopamine hits of a really funny thing and then a really exciting thing and then a really crazy thing, right? Mm -hmm. Back to back to back and that unlimited scrolling. I will say though, TikTok did not invent that. Yep. And they're not going to be the last one to produce that and create that environment. And a lot of the American social media platforms are trying to emulate it, not trying, actively emulating it rain different ranges of success so far in the next say. five years it'll be yeah it'll be like that for everything yeah I genuinely think we're going to be going on Google and if you're on mobile your Google search results will give you an option to watch TikTok style videos on where to go get lunch yeah I'm positive about it and so I am I think that the fear around the addiction is valid. I think the solution 
being to just ban one social media platform at a time is short-sighted. Yep. The uh, Similar to what I was saying earlier, it's going to require boundaries, monitoring, adult interactions with folks with where their brain isn't fully developed to be able to have a robust experience with learning, education, development, and the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure, you know, even in the 80s and early 90s, people were like, oh, all these TV channels, kids are just watching TV all day. It's rotting their brains. Like those things literally happen at every sort of new instance of technology and it's not going to stop. Mm-hmm. But also we know that TV didn't really rot anyone's brains Yeah, I, I, to, to, to the degree that people were really afraid of. Um, and so, yeah, but it's, but it's still important to make sure your kids are reading books and playing outside and it's not the internet's job to parent their kids though it's not it's the parents job to parent the kids you heard it here first from hillary yeah, and yeah. madison <laughs> you can quote us on that right you can direct <laughs> quote us on this one no one's ever said that before but yes that's literally it it's true it's true though it it's is true it is. video games don't parent your kids like it's yeah. Well, have you heard about how China has the restrictions in place about when kids can play mm-hmm. and how it mm-hmm. they put the responsibility of monitoring and validating these kids and their time usage on the video game companies? Oh, wow. And to yeah. me, that is so wild because that goes back to the same thing. I'm like, it's the parent's job to parent the kids. It's not the it's not the responsibility of a video game company. Correct. Uh, and I think mind. every American would feel that way and feel like it is too much uh, ownership of a big media company or a big video game company to do that, mm-hmm. or even the government. Mm-hmm. Yet that's kind of what they're proposing by saying let's ban TikTok. Like it's it's you know you know what I mean. Like math it, ain't mathin'. Right, and if kids are messaging each other on LinkedIn. Social media is not going anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> They're going to find AOL well, chat was crazy yeah. back in the mid-2000s. And there's always going to be new iterations. I still remember the, the AIM messaging when it mm-hmm. was, you know, coming out. I'm also a millennial. So at school, you know, it wasn't banned. And then all of a sudden it got banned. And MySpace, the same thing. And all these other mm-hmm. social media platforms that they couldn't really hang on to and figure out you know, even gamification messaging games. Like there's a lot. Do you remember RuneScape? (laughs) Yes, of course. That was one too. I mean, there was like a zillion. And I I swear my parents Mm -hmm. would be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And it's like, the kids are always going to find a way. And they're going to move faster than your parents can, than the government can, et cetera. And that's why it's the general practices that need to be established and communicated because it's agnostic of one social platform. If you haven't told your Mm -hmm. kids about the dangers of talking to older people online, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter if they're doing it on Instagram. Or Yahoo pool. (laughs) Or right. Yeah. <laughs> or Craigslist, you know Craigslist. what I mean? Like, it's, I'm just saying, oh. there was a lot of the 2000s was wild. The 2000s yeah, was 2000. wild. There was there was no playbook for that one. I will say though, <laughs> you know, speaking of generations though, because I know that you work a lot with Gen Z, and you, we've talked mm-hmm. about it a little bit on this episode as far as Gen Z really embracing that 
content creation lifestyle and having it be supplementary to what they're doing in their life, not just the end goal or whatnot. But I do think that there's something really nice that I've noticed, which is historically, it feels like as a millennial, like I always felt like I was getting talked down to or that we were the lazy generation Mm -hmm. or we were, you know, Mm -hmm. this, we were that. And I have to say, I feel like as the older generation to Gen Z and Alpha, that we're a lot nicer to them. The millennial to Gen Z pipeline, like we're like, go little rock star. Like you guys get down with your bad selves. Yes. Like they're older, like they're supportive, older sibling rooting them on. I agree where the older for us, it was very much like wagging the finger, blaming us for all of these things that were completely out of our control in in, assuming this level of entitledness. I completely agree. But I think that's also in large part because millennials saw all of these changes happening and were deeply interacting with them. And so the changes that happened didn't shock us to say, Mm -hmm. who can we blame? Oh, Gen Z's. It's like, no, no, no. We see the natural evolution. We're experiencing this. We're a few steps in front of you. So so here's our tips on how to navigate it. And I think you can really see that even online. Millennials will make a lot of content that's helping Gen Zs understand how to travel, how to find their first apartment, how to budget, all these different kind of life skills that we're handing down those recipes for lack of a better word, you know, to this younger group. Now, do they make fun of us? Yes. So the millennials are just the most bullied generation. I would agree. <laughs> Gen Z has so many ways that they make fun of us, but hey, that's what you get as an older sibling. That's all right. I'll take it. I, it's much better yeah. than the, the wagging of the finger, as you say. I agree. So with creator economy, you know, as people are looking at the future of the space and really trying to figure out if it is worth their time or not, especially looking at TikTok and is it, is it going to be around? Is it not going to be around? We know it's going to change because it always does. And there's always going to be something new out there. What advice would you give to somebody who was thinking or considering about really monetizing their own content creation and getting into the space, knowing that they may not ever go viral or have like a big hit, but could definitely fit into a niche community. Yeah, I would say um, similarly to entrepreneurship, because there are so many parallels and it's very entrepreneurial. Make sure that you're in it for more than just the money. I will take the, you know, or let me start over, but Make sure that you're in it for more than just the money because there's going to be lows. There's going to be highs. You're going to get a lot of rejection when you first start out trying to monetize. You might even get accepted onto the Clutch platform, but might not get your first collab for the first few months. It's going to take time and it's going to take perseverance. So you might as well really enjoy what you're doing and what you're creating. Because if you're just doing it to try to hop on a trend or for reasons that don't actually feel meaningful and good to you, the second it gets hard, you're going to quit. And if it does get hard and you quit, that's okay. You're not a failure. It just wasn't the right fit. But 
by being able to find the niche in which you exist and thrive, you're going to build a genuine community around what you're doing that can and will get noticed by brands where you can monetize. That could get noticed just by the community that you're building and you can find other ways to monetize that by making a Patreon or making more YouTube content or things that you can independently do. And of course, you can join a platform and try to work more collaboratively with brands on long-term things. All those things kind of open up when your passion is actually shining through. And so it's going to be essential that you stay true to yourself because that's what is impactful and that's what AI can never replace. Take your notes, people. All right, Madison, I have one last question for you. Where do you see Clutch in the next five years in the context of the growing creator economy? I see Clutch as a foundational structure in the creator economy where from a creator's perspective, they feel seen, they feel cared for, they feel like they're doing work that they really love. And they know they're not going to be a millionaire from Clutch. But we're setting them up and building that kind of foundational experience for hundreds of thousands of creators, ideally, in the next five years to be able to use that as a springboard to maybe supplement their income or be able to become that influencer who is making millions of dollars potentially because of all the robust experiences and education they've been able to have by being part of Clutch. For brands, I want it to be the most trusted resource for finding your next content creator to join your social media team and a way to actually augment the growth of your digital marketing presence meaningfully. And I believe that that's something we'll be able to prove out even shorter term. And so in five years, I want that to be our brand of the number one way to do this. And so I'm really optimistic about that. And I think that we have all of the right components to get there. And so um, I'll be excited to see how that all shapes up, including what shapes up with technology evolving. So I will be so excited to see that happen in the next five years and even sooner. And you're already on your way because what were you named like today? Oh, yes. I am Adweek Creative 100. Ooh. Kiki Palmer was on the list. And so me and Kiki Palmer have so much in common. Gotta love That's it. Gonna start Madison, <laughs> congratulations. You. I am so happy for you. And I cannot wait to see what you do with Clutch. I am just... It it always is the best to be surrounded by people like you who are seeing gaps in the market and filling it up and finding ways to lift up other people with their passions and being able to do so in such a fun way. So incredibly proud of you. And I want everybody who's listening right now to learn where they can find you, how they can support you and where they can learn more about Clutch. Sure. And I want to say thanks for inviting me to do this and platforming folks like myself. It means a lot. But yes, feel free to follow us across socials at that's clutch underscore com. That's more of our business profile or clutch.creator, which is more focused on the creator experience. And then my personal socials are Madison, M-A-D-I-S-O-N, long, L-0-N-G, across Instagram and Twitter. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Madison. Thank you. This is wonderful. Thanks, Hillary.
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories, deep dives, and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there.